Alright, hello, and welcome to Adventures Among Ideas, bringing you inspiring instances from the history of intellection. Today I'm continuing with the Limits of Pluralism debate, the penultimate episode this is of the little mini of this little mini-series on literary interpretation. So get ready and buckle up. The first three um, episodes that I did for this, I uh, discussed Wayne Booth, M.H. Abrams, and J. Hillis Miller. Um, the first they uh, published their first three contribution contributions to this debate in the spring of 1977, which I realized was how many years ago? 45, 45 years ago, I believe. In Critical Inquiry, the journal, the famous journal Critical Inquiry. And then in the summer of 1977, so kind of the first publications, official kind of publications, were in the spring of 1977. In the summer of 1977, two more contributions were published, one by James Kincaid and one by Morse Peckham. Both Kincaid and Peckham uh, tried to mediate in different ways, in certain ways, between the Chicago neo-Aristotelians, such as Wayne Booth, and the historicists such as Abrams on the one hand so they're kind of traditional in different ways on the one hand and then on the other hand you had the deconstructionists like J. Hillis Miller and uh, Booth and uh, sorry not Booth but uh, Kincaid and Peckham were in different ways trying to mediate between these two groups kind of traditional and non-traditional literary critics uh, so Kincaid, today we're talking about James Kincaid. Kincaid's essay was called Coherent Readers, Incoherent Texts. Uh, in my humble opinion, it's maybe the weakest entry in the debate in terms of its argument, but it's worth discussing anyway because it brings up some important points, I think. So who is Kincaid? Actually, I don't really know too much about him. I looked him up, but um, I just know really his work. I don't know very much about him personally, but I believe he's still an English professor at the University of Southern California, as far as I could tell. Mainly a specialist in Victorian literature. He's written a bunch of stuff about Victorian literature, literature and also about the uh, sexualization of children in kind of popular culture. So an interesting, interesting work, but I don't know much too much about him. Um, so, and I don't know if he had spent too, too much time at this uh, time of his life wading into theoretical issues, so that may account for some of the weaknesses here. I don't really mean any disrespect by saying that. Um, this was, of course, 45 years ago. Uh, in his article, so going into the article, uh, Kincaid says that he wants to find a middle ground, quote-unquote, find a middle ground that is perhaps not satisfactory to any of the parties in uh, to the debate but which incorporates some freedom and some solidity of meaning so he wants to give some freedom of meaning but also some kind of solid center of meaning as well uh kincaid says that booth and abrams are basically right about readers or about the activity of reading and that miller is right more right about texts and language per se uh readers Kincaid says, try to construct a unity or coherence out of what they read. So it's the activity of the readers that is creating or trying to create coherence. But the text itself, or at least many of the texts that we find to be most interesting, present incoherence. So again, 
coherent readers' incoherent texts. Uh, this seems to be related to a principle of a certain kind of perception theory. Uh, the world, according to this theory, presents us with chaos or a disorder, and the purpose of our per perceptual apparatus is to make some kind of sense out of it, to put it in some kind of order on which we can act. Uh, Kincaid does, as a matter of fact, briefly mention this type of theory, but um, it's not a really big major component of his article. So Kincaid's basic argument is that, and I'm going to quote him, most texts, texts are in fact demonstrably incoherent, presenting us not only with multiple organizing patterns, but with organizing patterns that are competing, logically inconsistent. So the text is made up of patterns that don't fit together logically. Uh, now, Kincaid mainly focuses on novels or genres of novels. Sometimes he theme, uh, seems to be talking about themes rather than genres. But in any case, his work is certainly, I think, made easier by focusing on the novel. Because the novel is a famous, famously complex genre of literature, especially in the analysis of someone like Mikhail Bakhtin, the great Russian literary theorist, and others have said similar things. Uh, the novel, novel is almost by definition an incoherent genre. So characters talk in different ways, there's different narratives going on, one after the other, or in the, at the, kind of at the same time. Uh, different settings may be involved, there may be bits of poetry or song mixed in with the prose. There's dialogue mixed in with just description. So it's all kinds of stuff happening in novels usually, even you know fairly mainstream kind of straightforward novels. There's lots of different things going on. So I think it's always been um, a challenge to find coherency in the novel. So I think his, ta uh, his task of showing how literature is incoherent is maybe made too easy by the choice of genre. Anyway, to illustrate what he means by incoherence, what does incoherent mean? Uh, Kincaid uses the famous duck-rabbit image, ambiguous image. You've probably seen this before. If you look at it one way, the figure, you know, it's a drawing. If you look at it one way, it looks like a duck. If you look at it the other way, it looks like a rabbit. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein made it especially famous, though he wasn't the first person to use it. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can Google duck rabbit ambiguous image. Uh, but you'll probably recognize it when you see it. When you look at the image, you see either a duck or a rabbit, right? So you flicker, you might flicker back and forth between, between seeing a duck and seeing a rabbit. But anyway, you can't see both a duck and a rabbit at the same time. It seems to be impossible in principle to see both at the same time while you might see different ones in quick succession um there's no so there's no single coherent figure in other words and one figure cannot be subordinated to the other so the duck is not just kind of a funny kind of rabbit the rabbit is not a funny kind of a duck or something so it's not mainly one thing or the other thing it's both things um, at the same time but we can only see one or the other at any one instant. Uh, anyway, so Cade tries to demonstrate that literary texts, or at least novels, do the same thing. They present different patterns that can't be reconciled or fit together into one unified, coherent thing. A novel presents us with 
a variety of details and themes and narrative arcs and you know characters and so on and we try uh, so kincaid says to make a consistent experience out of this but our what we might call our will to con will to coherency is uh constantly frustrated or thwarted by the actual text Kincaid gives a number of examples. I just want to mention one, just to give the flavor of his procedure here in this article. Um, I'll give the example of Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Uh, Wuthering, Wuthering Heights, Kincaid says, can be read as a romance, a tragedy, a comedy, or an irony. And here um, Kincaid is following Northrop Fry's four narrative patterns found in literature. This was big at the time. Um, so in one way of looking at the book for Kincaid, it's a romance with Gothic elements. And I should say it's, if you look at the article, it's very, I find it very unclear what Kincaid means by romance. I mean, there's different, uh, understandings of the term romance in literary theory. So, uh, I mean, Kincaid doesn't give a really clear picture of what he means. He's not, doesn't seem to be exactly using Northrop Fry's definition. Kincaid says something about um the novel's tendency to abstract to universalize and to establish absolute rather than relative or socially determined standards of judgment um i'm not really sure if i read when i read the novel i don't know if i see that but so i'm not quite sure what he's talking about here or why this would necessarily why romance in this sense whatever that is would necessarily conflict with tragedy or irony or whatever else um but in anyway Moving on, in another way, the book is a tragedy. Uh, on this reading, the intense and disastrous relationship between Heathcliff and Kathy is emphasized, the older Kathy. Uh, and in yet another way, the book is a comedy. In this case, the narrative of Harriton and Kathy Linton is emphasized more. And also maybe uh, the Lockwood story, the Lockwood narrative arc. Um, and finally, the book is an irony, Kincaid says. In this case, we would focus especially on the character of Nellie. Uh, now, Nellie doesn't exactly draw our most intense interest in the book and is kind of obtuse, kind of this common folk character. But in a sense, in another sense, she's the dominant character. She goes really from beginning to end, or for most of the book anyway, and is kind of the winner of the story in a sense. You know, she outlasts everyone, um, or at least she's kind of there at the end, as Ken Cade says, uh, babbling on or whatever he says at the end. So she's kind of the kind of the winner. Um, so, but are these points of view really incoherent with each other? Can we not see the novel as both a tragedy and a comedy, as a romance and an irony? Do these things not fit together? Um, Kincaid claims that no, they don't. We can't see them as all these things. At least, uh, we can't see them as all these things in the same way that we can't see the duck rabbit image as both a rabbit and a duck at the same time. Uh, so he says these narrative patterns are defined in opposition to each other. And that makes the text incoherent. When we read the novel, we respond to all of them, to all of these different narrative patterns, or at least we can respond to all of these different narrative patterns, but we're not able to actually unify these patterns of romance, tragedy, comedy, and irony into something higher, into a higher, uh, more embracing unity. As Kincaid says, 
describing the book, there is a romance which develops incoherently into a tragedy, the, Keith, the, um, the Heathcliff Kathy Earnshaw story, and there is an irony which develops incoherently into a comedy, the Periton Kathy Linton story, supported vigorously by Nellie Dean. Uh, and these two patterns of romance into tragedy and irony into comedy, which Kincaid claims are themselves incoherently developed, directly conflict with each other. So apparently the romance into tragedy and the irony into comedy directly conflict with each other. Do they? I don't know. This is not exactly what Fry would claim. Uh, I think Fry, in Fry's theory, tragedy and comedy do uh, formally conflict with each other, and romance and irony conflict with each other. So there is a sense in which, yes, the Heriton, uh, the Heathcliff Kathy story and the Heriton Kathy story conflict with each other. Um, but does romance in is romance incoherent with tragedy and is irony incoherent with comedy? This is not something that Fry says, I think. He says in fact that they blend together. So romance and irony, uh kind of on separate terms, can be either tragic or comic or uh, or comic. Romance and tragedy blend together, irony and tragedy can blend together, and so on. Um so yeah, I'm not sure if the if what Kincaid is saying here makes total sense, I guess it depends on how you're going to define things. It doesn't, but it doesn't seem to me that there is a necessary conflict between the various narrative patterns in Wuthering Heights. Um, again, I think it just depends on how you define the patterns. If you define them as conflicting, then, well, they conflict. If you define them as part of a whole, then maybe for you they cohere. Um, on the other hand, so there's another way maybe of looking at what he's saying here um, and maybe reinterpreting what he's saying here. I think you could argue that the conflict is not in the text. So there's, the incoherence is not per se in the text, um, but in the reader's experience. And this kind of subverts what um, Kincaid is trying to say. But we can feel horrified or saddened or whatever at the Heathcliff Kathy Earnshaw story arc. And we can feel delighted or laugh or whatever at the Harriton Kathy Linton arc. Uh, but we can't do both at the same time. Right? So our response, our responses conflict. We have one response at, during one scene or one event or one part of one narrative and a different kind of response at a different part, a different part of a narr other narrative. So... You could also argue kind of contra Kincaid that the text is coherent or maybe undecided and the reader is incoherent. The experiences of the reader are just incoherent. And this maybe matches more with our real lives in which we go through life experiencing things that having experiences that can't be easily put together into a whole. But we try to do that maybe with our personality or when we talk about self and things like that. We're trying to make a unity out of our diverse and divergent and eclectic experiences. Uh, so yeah, maybe. Anyway, I don't think Kincaid very successfully mediates between the Booth Abrams position and the Miller deconstructionist position, but he does raise some interesting issues, as I said, and it gives me at least a reason to revisit Wuthering Heights, which is kind of a, a standard in discussions of literary criticism. So it's a good book to know. 
All right, I should also mention that Kincaid's article was responded to by the Fry scholar Robert Denham, who made some criticisms, uh, which I brought up some of his criticisms already, um, about his maybe misreading or misuse of Fry's theory. Denham's article was, uh, that's D-E-N-H-A-M, not quite like my name, uh, in an article called The No Man's Land of Competing Patterns. And then Kincaid responded to this, in an, uh, to that article, in a, another article called Pluralistic Monism. So I've incorporated some of the ideas from that exchange already in my earlier discussion. Uh, so I think, um, well, I'll mention also that I think Kincaid might have done better to draw on Morse Peckham's writings. Uh, who I'll talk about next next time. I'll talk about Morse Peckham next time. But Morse Peckham had these uh, a series of writings in the 1960s on aesthetic discontinuity. And this Kincaid might have found these helpful. Um, perhaps he did not know about them. Uh, in those writings, in Peckham's writings on aesthetic dis discontinuity, Peckham argued that there are four kinds of discontinuity or incoherence present in art. Uh, he calls these internal, external, implicit, and modal discontinuities. Uh, and he argued that uh, the use of these kinds of discontinuities in aesthetic situations, in artworks, in literature, was uh, evolutionarily adaptive. This was his theory of the time. He kind of changed it later on, but he thought experiencing discontinuities in these protected aesthetic situations was adaptive to human beings. Um, and the incoherences Kincaid is talking about in terms of books like Wuthering Heights can maybe be seen as uh, forms of implicit and internal discontinuities, which is to say uh, violations of generic um, expectations set up by the culture or by the text itself. You know, the text set up certain expectations with, about it, whether it's going to be kind of a, this gothic romance, and then it transforms in parts into a comedy and other kinds of things. So there's this kind of uh, violation of norms that are set up in the text or by the by the culture in which the text was written. Uh, we call these con uh, con uh, discontinuities. Anyway, there, and there's other kinds of discontinuities present in the novel. The character of Heathcliff famously is especially rich from this perspective. A lot of discontinuity or kind of drastic change in his character. Uh, it might be fun sometime to analyze Wuthering Heights in terms of, his di of its discontinuities, but that would be a project for another day, of course. Anyway, something to think about. Are texts incoherent or not? If so, how are they incoherent? Are readers? Or is the reading experience coherent or not? If so, how? How is it coherent or incoherent? These are interesting topics to think about, I think, and important both when talking about deconstruction and about kind of a, uh, traditional reader theory, theory of the reading experience and the text. All right. Well, anyway, next time I will talk about Peckham, who I've mentioned a couple times already. I'll talk about Peckham's own contributions to the limits of pluralism debate as we conclude the debate. So thanks for listening and have a good one.